Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think they're a concept, or I complete them, or I'm going to make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where... We're still socially distanced. We will continue to be socially distanced, but we are also together. So I am Lauren Humphreys-Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. And how are you doing this fine socially distanced day? You know, I'm doing all right. The sun is shining today. We had rain the last couple of days. There are birds very loudly chirping outside my window, and it's actually making me kind of happy and not annoyed. So I think that's a good thing. Yay! Yeah, like I've been, I've seen, you know, the they they've been showing like aerial shots of places over LA and New York and places mm-hmm. like that, and like and the LA smog is gone, which is very yeah. exciting. <laughs> well, it's crazy. I have terrible allergies, and um, usually this time of year and in the the fall is actually worse, but in the spring I I get hit pretty hard, and um, this year it's like. The pollen's bad, yeah. Uh, the guard, we, uh, where I live, there's a gardener that comes and does the the lawns and stuff, and he did it the other day, and it was like it kind of stirred things up. But I am not having nearly the problems that I usually do, and I think it's because the air is clean. I think because I'm not mm-hmm. also contending with smog, uh-huh. it's really helped a lot. It's amazing. Uh-huh. Yeah. See, you know, I I don't know. I don't think that I. I would hesitate to say that this is Earth self-correcting because I think that that's kind of yeah. that's sort of damaging and everything. But we are definitely there are certain results that are coming out of this just by necessity that you know maybe will kind of make us think about uh, the way that we live. You know the fact that LA can clear up so quickly. That's the thing I've been thinking about a lot this this last couple of days is is because. You know, we talk about how damaged the planet is and how if we start making these changes, then we might make some, you know, tiny, there might be some tiny positive effects. And it's like, look at how how quickly this happened just by making everyone go inside. It's like it doesn't take years and years and years to course correct the damage that we've done. And it, but it does mean that we have to pull back on some things. And I'm, I'm hoping that once we get through all this, we don't just all jump back into business as usual. And we really take time to reflect on how easily we were able to fix some of the problems that we have created. Yeah. Yeah. How quick, how, just how quickly everything changed mm-hmm. and cleared. Like, yeah. you know, that, that is something to consider. And, and like you're saying, it actually does affect our quality of life. You know, it's yeah. not, it isn't, you know, we do live on this planet. It isn't just about us depriving ourselves of something. It's actually, we're gaining something at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so today, because as we know, very little is actually going on on a day-to-day basis in terms of the world of Hollywood. So we decided that today we would spend most of our time talking about um, film noir and particularly Columbia noir, which is currently on the Criterion channel, uh, which is celebrating its first birthday right it's been going a year 
Yep, April 8th, 2019, it launched. So happy birthday to the Criterion channel that you continue to bring us wonderful things. And honestly, this is getting me through this quarantine. I don't think I would I would be as happy right now as uh, if, if it wasn't for Criterion channel. <laughs> yeah. um, but before we get going on that, I did want to mention, um, uh, of course, we've, we've lost a number of very uh, famous people, celebrities recently, both as a result of, um, of COVID and also just as a result of the natural passage of time. Uh, and one of the people who passed this past week was Honor Blackman, who uh, passed away at the age of 94. And she did a, a completely uncoronavirus related. She was just 94 years old. Um, and of course, Honor Blackman is best known, probably, for uh, playing Pussy Galore in Goldfinger. But she is she was so much more than that. She is so much more than that. And I just wanted to like take a moment to, to mention her. She is someone that's very important to me uh, because she was the original Avengers woman on uh, the television show, The Avengers, which has been one of my favorite shows for years now. Uh, I've written about it. I've talked about it. I've gone on about it. I've read a Tumblr blog about it. Uh, I'm a little bit obsessed with it. And and her performance as Kathy Gale, who was um, John Steed's first partner, first female partner prior to Emma Peel, who's kind of generally more famous in the United States. But Kathy uh, is a spectacular character. And a lot of that is, is due to Honor Blackman because she came on, basically what happened on The Avengers was uh, the original series, the first series was two men. It was John Steed and it was a, a Dr. David Keel. And Keel was kind of the, the straight man, as it were. He was this very morally upstanding doctor and John Steed was a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit more nebulous in terms of, in terms of his morality. He was a hero, but, but the, he, he also did things that maybe Keel didn't approve of all the time. Um, and Keel was played by Ian Hendry. Hendry left the television show uh, in order to start doing more roles in, in film. And so they looked around for someone to replace him. And what they actually decided on was that rather than replacing him with another man, we're going to replace him with a woman. And famously, uh, they decided rather than just, they had a whole bunch of scripts that had been written for a male character. And so rather than rewriting the scripts or changing the scripts, all they did was that they 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 tinkered with it a little bit and uh, used the scripts for Honor Blackman's early episodes as Kathy Gale. Honor Blackman came in. She already had done judo. Uh, she was already on her way to being a judo black belt. So she did all of her own stunts on the show, as did Patrick McNee, who played John Steed, because it was a, it was a live, it was a, it was filmed as live, so it was taped on video, um, as though it was a stage play, basically. So everything had to be done uh, within the time frame. There weren't really any cuts. There weren't really any um, uh, changes that you could do much uh, on videotape. So. Uh, uh, so Honor Blackman did all of her own stunts. She continued to, she, she became a black belt in judo. She had already been during World War, uh, during World War II, she had been a motorcycle mes messenger. She had been a, um, her, her father made her learn self-defense because she was a, a young woman growing up in London. This also worked against him 
because uh, he was a somewhat abusive man. And at one point he hit her for wearing lipstick and she turned around and knocked him out. <laughs> and he never hit her again, according to her. So she she came on to the Avengers and she was just this just this spectacular force. And she really was one of the first truly feminist heroines uh, on television. There was never this this sense that, you know, she was never secondary. She was never treated as secondary. There was this wonderful balance between the two of them and between the way that they interacted with each other. Her characterization, her Kathy Gale's character is that she's this very badass uh, academic. She's got a PhD and being reminded this is 1962, 1963 in England. So this is very unusual. She, she was a big game hunter. She is this black belt in judo. She is constantly kind of um, pushing and pulling with Steed and forcing him to, to look at his own work in a very different way. Uh, and Kathy Gale was the reason why Honor Blackman eventually got the role in Goldfinger because she was so popular in Britain and she was such a major character uh, and such a major actress that it really did launch Honor Blackman's career. Prior to, prior to that, she had been in a lot of small roles as kind of the quotation marks, English Rose. She was this very small, blonde, pretty young woman. And uh, and by the time she had played as Kathy Gale, she came out as this, this wonderful feminist figure. So she was, she was an awesome person, just generally. She was very feminist. She was very progressive. Uh, she was very responsible for some of the, the progression, both in television and in film. And I really think that we need to remember her not just as this, this character, who's a, a great character in Goldfinger. She really is wonderful in it. But she's so much more than that. And, and it is a loss to, for, for her to have passed away. But it's also she also lived one hell of a life. And I think that that's something to be celebrated. So we're sorry to have lost Arnold Blackman. But, um, you know, we can still watch all of the wonderful things that she did. Yeah. So that's, that's just my little spiel about Honor Blackman, because she's so cool. <laughs> She sounds like an amazing person. I'm not as familiar with her work as I would like to be. I've seen a couple of the things that she's done, but uh, yeah, I wasn't, I don't know her and I'm not familiar with her as a person. So thank you for that. She, uh, she, I mean, she also did, actually, she also did a number of noirs, uh, which are, which is something we're going to talk about today, <laughs> uh, as well as um, she played Hera in Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, again, a very small role, and uh, and fairly fairly recently, she was in a movie called Cockneys vs. Zombies, which if anyone has not seen, <laughs> it is a wonderful film. It's very funny, uh, and she is like you know ninety years old and carrying around a machine gun. So, <laughs> which, given everything you've just said about her life, that checks out. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she was in good shape, uh, right in, really right until the day she died. This was someone who did Pilates every day and was always very active and everything. So she had she had quite a life. Uh, so moving on, we wanted to talk a little bit about Columbia Noir and what Columbia Noir means and all of the really fascinating and fantastic films that are being shown on the Criterion channel right now. And there are a lot of them. 
because they've put back on a number of the films that they had had uh, on the Columbia Noir collection earlier, as well as a whole bunch more. So there's just all sorts of interesting stuff to watch. So I thought maybe we would start off with, we've talked about film noir before, we, we covered it in November um, this past year, but maybe to mention some of the elements that tend to go into film noir, which is a very nebulous uh, distinction because people argue about whether or not it's a genre, whether it's a, um, uh, is it just like, is it one of those that, that you kind of know it when you see it? Uh, film noir is, is obviously comes from the French, which is, uh, so it means black film or dark film, and is usually in reference not only to the content, which is always very much about characters on the edge of society at some level, whether they're cops, criminals, um, people that are moving towards being cops or criminals, or uh, it's... So it's also in reference to the actual uh, use of image and the way that the lighting works in film noir, where you get a lot of chiaroscuro, you get a lot of shadows and light and very dark streets, uh, dark alleyways, um, all of these different elements. And it's usually in reference to post-war American films that are covering, again, these liminal figures, gangsters, police officers, corrupt police officers, uh, murderers, um, assassins, things like that. So I've watched a whole bunch of these. Uh, I think that maybe we just want to talk about maybe some of the ones that are our favorites or the most essential, uh, the ones that are just like, you know, these are just great films. So do you have, do you have one Karen that you want to start off with? So I, uh, I've watched a couple this week. I haven't seen like I mean, like we talked about in November, I haven't seen that. My experience with noir isn't that broad, um, and I haven't had time to watch tons because these just got these just landed on Criterion on Wednesday. So I've watched a few. Um, the very first one that I watched was Blind Alley, mm-hmm. which I so I I still don't know if I liked the movie itself, but I found it really fascinating because. Something that we've talked a lot about on this podcast, actually, is the way that um, we kind of have this idea in our heads nowadays, or, well, I think probably every generation has, that we're the ones that um, kind of have discovered, I don't know how to explain it, but, like, certain themes didn't exist until, you know, this person started making them or whatever, and then... Mm -hmm. But you go back and look at older films and you realize, like, wait, no, they've been talking about these things for 40, 50, 70 years, you know. Um, And so one of those was uh, in Blind Alley, which is about, um, what's his name? Um, It's from 1939. Yeah. And so there's this, like, gangster. He's on the run. He ends up in a a doctor's home. It's actually a psychiatrist. And um, there's kind of a standoff. He's holding the doctor's family hostage. And during this hostage situation, the doctor starts basically psychoanalyzing him and breaks down this recurring nightmare that he's been having for his entire life. And it was just so interesting watching that and thinking about how, like, I mean, you go back to the... 30s and I I know Sigmund Freud was you know 
around and stuff. But it's I don't know. It just surprised me hearing some of the the terms that and the psychoanalysis and the dream analysis and stuff. And I don't mm-hmm. know why it surprised me because I mean dream analysis goes back to the Old Testament. So. <laughs> 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 so I think I was like surprised at my ignorance that that's something that they would have been making movies about back then. But, um, but I thought it was really fascinating watching the way that they break down this dream and get mm-hmm. into what it really means and then how that affects him. And um, yeah, I think I liked it. Yeah. I, I actually, I recently saw blind alley as well. And uh, it's, I, I found it really interesting. I, I agree with you that it's, it's a very um, it's a very wobbly film in a certain sense because it's it kind of wears everything kind of right out in the open. You know what's happening. There's not a lot of truly psychological like psychological mystery to it, right? Uh, or complexity to it. But it's it's an interesting focus. It's also it's very early. It's 1939, so mm-hmm. it's an er, it's early for noir, and it's kind of interesting that it's being categorized that way. Uh, but it, it actually reminded me of um, some of similar home invasion films, which got more popular in the 1940s and 50s. And one of the big ones, which is not on the Columbia Noir collection, is uh, The Desperate Hours with um, Humphrey Bogart as as the criminal and uh, uh, Friedrich March as actually a I think he's a, he's a physician. He's not a psychiatrist, but it's a similar kind of back and forth battle, essentially between the mentalities of these two men. Um, one of them attempting to preserve, obviously, his home and his home life, and the other one uh, attempting to escape, and but also becoming trapped at the same time. One of the things I really liked about Blind Alley was the way that they represented the dream. That was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the use of the negatives, and, um, and it's very, you know, noir has a lot of affinities with German expressionism, and that kind that interest in the in sort of visualizing the psychology of characters so it isn't just about it's about externalizing the internal and so what we see in um in blind alley where you're actually seeing his experience from his perspective a lot of the time uh of this this otherwise fairly you know unlikable unsympathetic character and then entering into kind of this this dream analysis, it, he becomes more sympathetic. He begins to understand where he's actually coming from, uh, and it begins to fall fall into those categories of, or um, usually referred to as social problem films, which are which are more about you know how do how do criminals become criminals? Well, they become criminals because of a bad background, right? right. Because of poverty, because of abuse, all of that, and so. It, it sort of wanders a little bit more into that territory, which was very popular actually in the 1930s. So it's an interesting precursor to a lot of noir films. Yeah. Well, and just to go on what you were talking about with the way the dream is portrayed, not even what it represents or how it's broken down, but the way it's literally portrayed. Mm-hmm. I was so fascinated by that. It, it looked really cool. And that was another one of those things where I thought, man, we do not give, and I mean we as, you know, just the uneducated masses of film go- film viewers nowadays, 
we don't give enough credit or don't understand enough about the innovations that were made back in the early days of film and how so many things they they were having to figure this out and they were brilliant Mm -hmm. at some of the the ways that they thought to portray stuff it wasn't all just you know oh let's just film this as, as it's happening they they came up with really creative things i mean we've talked about um the adventures of prince ahmed or you know you think about films like Godzilla, you know, where they had to come up with really creative ways to tell these stories. And I, I think in Blind Alley, the way that they, the way that they use the, the film, the way that they process that actual sequence was an innovation that really surprised me and Mm. it shouldn't have, (laughs) but it did. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And it's, it's very simple in some ways, but it's very effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, it is uh, it's using those sort of camera tricks and and tricks of image to kind of get the viewer to focalize through this this figure who is like, like I say not particularly sympathetic before. And I don't think he's really sympathetic by the end of the film either. You don't want him to win or anything. Right. But you do begin to understand him more and to understand, you know, kind of the almost the tragedy of him, the mm-hmm. the sadness that is lurking underneath all of that. It's it's a very interesting film. I mean, it is pop Freudianism. It's some of it, you know, as as you get to the solution of the dream, it's like, well, isn't that convenient? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's very much a one to one allegory, mm-hmm. uh, which is is ab- about where a lot of people can. Ab- about where a lot of people thought about psychiatry at that, at that time period, and certainly the way that Hollywood represents it. Yeah. Um, but it is very much, it's a precursor to a lot of films. It's a precursor to stuff like Cat People, which is a more supernatural, doesn't really fall into the, fall into the noir category, uh, but has some, it shares similar elements to it. Like I said, precursor to stuff like The Desperate Hours, or even Key Largo, which is uh, you know a similar sort of home invasion story, where and where you've got this battle of mentalities this battle of psychologies between two characters uh and and very much that investigation of the the criminal mind you know which is something that film is always interested in mm-hmm. yeah well and yeah. and like what you were saying too as far as as it, it makes him sympathetic but not to the point that you want him to win or get away and i think that that's really it's one of those things where i am glad that they made that point they couldn't have not made that point in the the time period i think but um i also thought it was (laughs) very like hitting the hammer over the head by reminding you over and over that this is a really bad guy that's done a lot of really bad things yeah like they wanted to make sure you really understood that he was not someone to feel bad for in the end I, I have to say, one of my favorite elements in that film is is this. It's kind of the secondary plot where you've got the the husband and wife and her sort of lover ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that whole fight. But one of the things that I really like is that the henchman who's assigned to like uh, guard them gets progressively fed up with listening to the three of them argue and bicker and like give each other shit and he and you can see by the end he's just like oh my god oh my god please stop yeah i just really like that little it's just this little aside that's not really made part of the main plot but i enjoy it mm-hmm. yep 
Uh, and and just just as a note, actually, they remade uh, Blind Alley. They did. And they remade Blind Alley as The Dark Past, which is also uh, which is also on the Columbia uh, Noir collection, which stars Lee J. Cobb and uh, William Holden. Huh. So. That's interesting as well. Yeah, it's, a, it's actually a little bit further down the list if you just go down the list of uh, Columbia Noir. Uh, and I have not seen it yet, so I don't know what kind of changes they made or anything like that. But it's it's about 10 years later. It's 1948. Uh, and so it, it would be interesting, actually, to consider the differences between the two of them, given that one is, is pre-war, one is post-war, one is pre really pre-noir. Um, and one is obviously right at the beginning of uh, the real increase in film noir. So, yeah, I don't know. And, and in relation to sort of looking into the um, criminal psychologies, uh, a very interesting film that I don't know if you got a chance to see it is uh, Edward Dimitrix the Sniper. No, not yet. Which is from 1952. And this is a really interesting film because it actually deals with... Um, the, the, the process of the story is about uh, a man who becomes, who is, is obsessed with women and is obsessed with uh, kind of women wronging him, essentially. And he begins, he begins shooting them from rooftops. And initially, within the context of the story, initially you get we get a lot of him, get a lot of his psychology. We we know from the very beginning who the sniper is. So this isn't really a a mystery or anything like that. It's more about why he does it and the kind of cat and mouse game that develops between him and the police officers that are looking for him. But we see really right from the beginning this kind of development of his um, of his psychosis and what's very fascinating about this one, I think, is that is that it's he knows that there's something wrong with him. Uh, he knows, and in fact, he tries to ask for help. He tries to call up a psychiatrist that uh, he used to know and who happens to be out of town. He tries to check. He he uh, tries to stop himself from from killing someone by burning his hand, and then winds up at a hospital. He. Uh, so he tries to kind of request, he even asks the police at one point for help. And at each turn, he's kind of not, he's, he's ignored, he's considered to be a crank, you know, they're, he's not given the help that he really needs. And so at a certain point, um, he finally, he actually does turn to murder. So the opening part of the film is about him kind of knowing that there's something wrong, that the impulses that he has and the anger that he has is not normal and he needs someone to stop him, but he cannot really ultimately stop himself. So it's a very interesting examination of that kind of psychosis. Um, and, and particularly the focus, he focuses on women, but he focuses on certain women. So the first woman that he kills is someone that he actually knows and that he's met before. And then as, as the film goes on, that changes. And so his pattern changes. So it's one of the earliest uh, serial killer films. It's very, um, but it's very integrated into the actual psychology of the serial killer. It reminded me of um, Fritz Lang's M in the sense that you begin to, you learn not just about the police investigation, but about the person that they're looking for and why he does the things that he does and where that comes from. Uh, and, And also his own horror at himself 
and his own fear about the crimes that he's committing, that this is not something he's not happy. This is not something he's enjoying. He's not a, a he's not a psychotic in the same sense that um, uh, he's not like he's not a sociopath. He understands that what he's doing is wrong and he basically can't control himself. So it's a really, really interesting film. Very different, very dark, very, uh, it's, it's filmed on the streets of San Francisco. So it's, um, uh, it's very much taking that kind of realist aspects of everything and, and then getting into the psychiatry of this man. It sounds really cool. I just added that to my list. It's, yeah, it's very good. It's interesting, too, because and um, myself and my roommate were talking about this because they keep on referring to him as a sex criminal. Oh. And what's odd about it is that, of course, in watching this, there's there's definitely something sexual about it. They're, like, he, he's directing his anger at women for a reason. He's directing his anger at a particular kind of woman. But he's not... He's not assaulting anyone. He's not raping anyone. He's not um, harassing anyone. And so it's it's odd because it also kind of tells us the way that the way that they defined things like that in like 1952, versus mm-hmm. the way that we would define it now. Now, if we were talking about someone who's a sex criminal, we, our, the assumption is that he he assaults women, he rapes women, etc. Right. Um, not that you know he takes a gun and and picks off women from a rooftop that that would we wouldn't fall he wouldn't fall into that same category he'd be considered a serial killer right uh but it's it's an interesting distinction and it's it's interesting to watch the way that particularly the police characters and and various government officials etc debate you know how to categorize this guy and what to do with men like this that you know how do you when you have a crime that is not really motivated it's not motivated by money it's not mo- it's not even really motivated by um by desire you know in the same way and it's how do you categorize them and how do you prevent these things from happening yeah hmm. so it's a very interesting film i i do recommend it cool i'm going to watch that i added it like i said i added it to my list so do you I have another one? I try to watch one? the things that you tell me to watch, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> we should watch all the things that I tell you to watch, really. Well, speaking of one that you told me to watch, I watched My Name is Julia Ross. Well, okay, so what did you think? Um, it was funny because while I was watching it, I was like, oh my gosh, I can think of different movies where I've seen certain aspects of it. And I kept thinking about like, why is gaslighting women so entertaining? (laughs) (laughs) And then I was like, but they're not really gaslighting her. They're just playing a part. Um, Yeah. Cause well, cause at first I thought they were trying to just make her be this person. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand really what their plot was. And um, I, I liked it. I think that it's one that could have benefited from being a little bit longer because I think that, um, I mean, the basic plot of the movie for anybody who hasn't seen it is that there's this woman named Julia Ross and she's living in London. She's looking for a job. And, um, cause the guy she loves just went off to get married to someone else. And, um, So she ends up at this agency and she gets hired kind of on the spot 
for a job that's a secretary but live in position. Um, runaway, ladies, if that ever happens. <laughs> Jobs like that are not what you think they're gonna be. Or what or they probably are what you think they're gonna be. They're not what you hope they're gonna be. Um <laughs> yeah. So even in nineteen forties, fifties London, that was not something that was very wise of her, but anyway. Um she wakes up and they start calling her Marion. Is it Marion? Hughes. Uh, yeah, that sounds right. And um, she's just like, but my name's not Marion Hughes. My name's Julia Ross. And they keep telling her she's crazy and chaos ensues. Um, she keeps trying to find different ways to escape this big house. Because it turns out she's not in London. She's at the ocean and there's a big prop and lots of cliffs and water below her so i i liked it i thought it was i thought it was um like a kind of one of those fun thriller type of movies but also yeah i felt like it could have been so much better if it had been a little bit longer because when dennis is or whatever his name is is kind of looking for her it's like that whole subplot gets shortchanged because they Mm. just don't have time for it and um some of the things that she does, it's like she gives up so quickly uh, when it doesn't work or she gets found out, you know, it's, there were just certain things that I just thought, oh man, if this had been just 30 minutes longer, even 20 minutes longer, it could have really felt like it wasn't so rushed. But the story itself, I, I enjoyed because I really liked the fact that she was pretty smart she came up with some really good ideas even if she kept getting thwarted every step of the way it well well, I was just gonna say watching it I kept thinking about the movie The Net and I was like I've never heard anyone (laughs) connect that movie to this one but I really feel like they got some ideas from this movie (laughs) I mean yeah they they might have they might have actually That's wow. That's an interesting completely different like... stories. Completely <laughs> different stories, but a you know a similar kind of idea, base basic basic idea. So, well, one of the things that I, I one of the reasons why I like my name is Julie Ross, and I totally agree with you that that it gets it's too short. It's mm-hmm. uh, it needs to be you know fifteen or twenty minutes longer to kind of develop some of the things that it introduces. But one yeah. of the things I really like about it is the fact that so much of the film is focalized through her and so much of the film is her trying to save herself. Mm -hmm. It isn't just, you know, initially she's like, what the fuck is going on? And then it's like, no, I'm definitely not this person that you keep on telling me I am. And it's one of those films that I, I could see going in, in a couple of different directions. And what I really like about it is that she continuously reinforces this idea that I know who I am. And nothing that you say is going to change that. It's not going to, you know, I'm not going to suddenly begin believing that you're, that you're telling the truth and that I'm crazy. Um, so there's that. And then there's, the other side of it is that she, she works so hard to, to save herself. She isn't, she isn't a waif. She isn't like a damsel in distress. She's not just like, okay, well, I'll just sit here and wait for somebody to come and rescue me. She's like, no, fuck this shit. This is wrong, and I'm going to try to get out of here. And she keeps on getting thwarted, as you say. But just the fact that she is so proactive in trying to rescue herself 
and to get herself out of the situation. Um, I really like that. And, and maybe part of it is because you expect something different from films of this period. Oh, yeah, uh, you don't ex- you don't expect women to act like that. And she does. She's just like, fuck all y'all. This is not I don't know what's happening, but whatever mm-hmm. it is, it isn't good. You know? Yeah. Well, and even in like quieter moments when she's talking to the the mother and she's just like, why are you doing this? It kind of actually it's like that scene in Invisible Man that's so effective where she's just like, why me? You know, yeah. why? Why are you doing this? And. Um, so some of those moments were really good, too. And I think it's interesting because this is a film that they very easily could have just started it on her waking up and being told she's one person and she knows she's not. And we don't know what the truth is. And instead, we get introduced to her in her life as herself. And so we are completely with her the whole time. And we always know that she is who she says she is and that we want her to get out of there too. And um, at first I thought, Oh, that's interesting. I wonder how it would have been if they had gone the other way. But then I was like, no, I'm really glad they didn't because then you don't have to question whether you should be on her side or, or not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't know. I think it's an interesting film. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and it, it is one of the few actually noirs in this collection where that is very much about a woman trying to fix the situation that she's in through no real fault of her own. You know, like you're saying, she makes she maybe she believes something too easily at the beginning, but that's really about it. It's not like she's gotten herself into the situation and, you know it's her fault or something. It's like, okay, this right. is fucked up, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, she's a completely innocent girl who just is looking for a job and doesn't have any connections because she doesn't have any family. The guy that she loved is gone now. And, um, and so she's just like, oh, what the heck? And it's like, you know, honestly, I've done some crazy things just because I'm like, eh, fuck it, what else do I have to do? You know, I've never yeah. been in that kind of situation. But I can... It's not completely far-fetched for me to believe that she would just kind of go along with it because, you know, she doesn't have anything else going for her, she thinks. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, still, don't accept a live-in position as a secretary from people <laughs> that you just met. Just don't do it. <laughs> uh, it never it never works out, at least no. not in the movies. Um, no. Well, you know, speaking of speaking of women that are very proactive and uh, try to do something, I recently watched Tight Spot, uh, which is a 1955 film starring Ginger Rogers uh, and Edward G. Robinson. And Ginger Rogers plays a uh, gangster's mall who has been in prison for uh, something like five or six years and she gets pulled out of prison because uh, by the dis- by the local by the district attorney and the local cops um, because they want her to testify against this big time gangster um, who's uh, basically been killing off all of the witnesses for his trial. And she's kind of the last person who can really convict him. And so most of the film is about. The police officer, played by Brian Keith, uh, Edward G. Robinson, who plays a district attorney, and, and uh, Ginger Rogers, having this kind of three-way debate about whether or not she is going to, to bear witness against this gangster and risk her life and, um, and risk her, her safety in order to put him in prison. And 
Ginger Rogers makes this film. She is fantastic. She, first of all, she plays a character who does not shut up. She just keeps on talking and it drives everybody around her crazy. Um, but it's all of this really sharp kind of uh, gangster patter. There's a lot of back and forth between her and Edward G. Robinson, um, where he's like being this very, he's this very upstanding uh, a district attorney who's also trying to convince this woman that, you know, she, she will be better off if she actually testifies against this gangster and her, like just the way that she talks and the strength of character that she exhibits is, is really wonderful. It's, it's a well photographed film. It's, I, I would almost not call it noir because it just doesn't quite fall into the, into the correct categories. But it is just such a well-made film. It is very entertaining, and it, it proves if we if we had any doubt, it proves that Ginger Rogers really was a good actress. Uh, we tend to think of her as just sort of a dancer and a comedian, but she she really was a, a wonderful dramatic actress, and she gets a lot out of this character who could have been very one-note and very um, just sort of comedic. So I, I that's one that I recommend. I added that to my list as well. <laughs> I almost want to talk about, here are some ones that maybe you should avoid, but I'm not going to quite yet. Well, uh, we can get there, too. Yeah. <laughs> there are definitely um, a few. Yeah. The other one that I watched at your recommendation, I just finished it this morning, was Pushover. <laughs> which stars the idiot Fred McMurray. <laughs> so, it's really so, funny. My, my opinion of Fred McMurray I know that he was in My Three Sons. I know he was the dad in that. And a lot of people uh, know him as Steve Douglas. But for me, my first introduction to him was in The Apartment. So I've never, like, that was how I knew him. That was what I thought of him as. And so I've Mm -hmm. never had, like, a, oh, I love Fred McMurray. So when I see him in in roles where he's not playing this great guy, I'm like, yep, yep, give him whatever (laughs) is coming to him. He deserves it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I have a hate-hate relationship with Fred McMurray. <laughs> I, 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 I like him in the sense that I, I he, very often, at least in noirs, he does play these these just very stupid or unlikable characters, and so I'm perfectly fine with him suffering. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but so do you want? I mean, what's explain to the people vaguely what pu- what is Pushover about? <laughs> Um, pushover is basically a police stakeout and they're staking out. It's actually, I think I'm making a lot of connections here. It's kind of what the movie stakeout spoofs a little bit. <laughs> Cause they are not staking out the guy that they're after they're staking out his girlfriend. And, um, and so Fred McMurray ends up, it's Kim Novak. And he ends up kind of worming his way in with her and trying to get close to her. And that causes a lot of problems with their investigation. And he ends up having to do some very bad cop things. And yeah, that's in a nutshell what the movie's about. What I kept thinking about while I was watching it is how often we see stories in real life and in the movies about these you know, decorated, respected cops throwing their entire career away for what they hope is some, you know, attachment with some cute girl. 
<sighs> Why are men so dumb? <laughs> Uh, that's actually, you know, that's honestly one of the things that I love about this movie is that the entire <laughs> film, I'm just like, oh, you poor dumb bastard. Yep. You're yep. just, you, you are so, so fucking stupid that <laughs> like, and, and part of it really is that this is Kim Novak at like the age of 21. I mean, she mm-hmm. is, she is very young. She is gorgeous. Right. And I'm sitting there watching this. I'm just like, Fred McMurray is, you know, 45 or whatever. I'm just like, dude, dude. Look at her. Just think about this for a minute. Why? Why would this fantastically attractive young woman have any interest in you? Like, just think about it from a distance for a minute. And yet we see this in real life all the time. These men that think they can get these girls. And it's like, okay, I'm of the belief that pretty much any man can get any woman that is attracted to men. Um... If they if they go about it the right way. The problem is that men don't hear the if they go about it the right way thing. And they think just as they are, they can get any girl they want. And that's not how that works. Well, that that's that's the thing. You know, I've, I've, I've spoken to some men in my equation. Just like, look, if Kim Novak ever throws herself at your feet and says that she just <laughs> adores you for no apparent reason, like you really haven't interacted with her that much suspect it she's gonna try to kill you (laughs) yeah like just like this this that doesn't happen women don't do that because they're just like oh you're just so amazing it's like no no fred mcmurray no (laughs) yeah you're really not amazing Mm -hmm. (laughs) um yeah so i i enjoy that in kind of a a dark and slightly nasty way of just being like oh you (laughs) stupid idiot she's gonna she is going to destroy your life and you'll kind of deserve it because you're being such a fucking idiot. Well, and he's the one that brought it on himself because like he could have just stayed at the stakeout, just not interacted with her, but no, he had to go and like mess with her car and disable it and introduce himself and like, you know, convince her that he was just this big damn hero. And it's like, no, you brought all of this on yourself, dude. All of it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do actually, I really, I really enjoy Pushover <laughs> for, that, <laughs> for that reason. Um, that was fun. So, so yeah, but it does, it does bring up one of those interesting elements that I think comes into noir uh, of this, the femme fatale, you know, the, the woman who lures men to their doom. And it's very often treated as, you know, a, she's an anti-feminist figure to a certain degree, Um because it is this like uh, the, this uh, this concept that women cannot be trusted, that women are are always going to be working some kind of an angle, attempting to to entrap men, right? These beautiful young women entrap entrapping men and getting them to do things, including murder, right? Uh, in order to to get the girl, right? So that's the one side of, of the femme fatale characterization. The other, the other side of it is that a lot of these films, as we're talking about, can be read against the grain. And you can actually look at it and be like, well, actually, you know, he's the one that's being stupid. He's the one that, that thinks, you know, it's, it's kind of like that thinks that women owe him sex. Mm-hmm. That thinks that this, this woman cannot possibly have any ulterior motives to cozy up to him. And that ultimately winds up... Uh, screwing himself over and destroying his own life because he has this, this very patriarchal belief that these women, 
that any that you know he he just is God's gift. He's just God's gift to women, and that if a woman is attracted, if a woman acts as though she's attracted to him, well, that must be true because he's so wonderful. Um, it's the theme that I mean, the movie itself was terrible, but in the movie Hustlers with Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson last year, that was one of the things that they talked about. That actually is like the one thing about that movie that was smart and and made sense was men don't believe that women are smarter than them and they will just believe anything we tell them because they think that they've got the upper hand. And this Mm -hmm. is a perfect example of that. Yeah. And, and femme fatales very much fall into that category. Usually if you look at a lot of of femme fatale characters across, across any North, you look at Barbara. Sorry, the hustle, not hustlers. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, those women are very smart too, and they do the same thing, actually. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just like, oh, you poor dumb bastard. <laughs> Hustlers, it worked. The hustle, it did not. <laughs> um, but if you look at any you know, any of the major femme fatales in, in these films, so Barbara Sandwick in Double Indemnity, um, Kim Novak in in Pushover, uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, Veronica Lake in almost anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but these, uh, Jean Tierney in, um, I mean, it's not quite noir, but Leave, Leave Her to Heaven, those kinds of films. Rita Gloria Graham, Rita Hayworth, Gloria Graham. Uh, most of these women, you know, they're, it isn't just that they're fantastically attractive. They are, obviously. But they're also very intelligent. Mm-hmm. And they're represented as being very intelligent. And they're very often women that are trapped in marriages or in bad marriages or in bad situations, bad relationships that because of their femininity, because of their, because of of the social restrictions on them, the cultural restrictions, they can't escape from. Right. And what they wind up doing is they use stupid men to escape from it. And to find a way to escape from it, and usually they're punished at the end. They they very often don't succeed uh, at the end of the film. But that's but part of the story really is about the restrictions on women, and particularly on intelligent women. These are, you know, if you look at Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity, yes, she's gorgeous. She is also incredibly smart. She basically sets up this entire thing. She plans everything. She constructs this whole scenario, and she succeeds at it. Right. And ultimately it falls apart on her, but she is very intelligent. She's far smarter than the male character. She's far smarter than her husband. Um, she's way smarter than poor dumb Fred McMurray. <laughs> and, she al- and she almost gets away with it, you know? So, uh, and, and then of course in, in later films and like neo-noirs, you, there are women that get away with it. There are femme fatales that succeed and they kind of walk away with everything, and the men are left there going to prison for the things that the women did. Um, but it's an interesting dichotomy. It's an interesting kind of tension that develops in in looking at these women and reading these women as characters that are are on the one hand anti-feminist, but can also be read in a feminist light. I don't honestly have anything to add to what you just said because it was very smart. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I always see. I like these kinds of these kinds of things. I love being able to read certain things against the grace. Just like, well, actually, it is feminist, and here's why. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and I think that that's the the point is that feminism can take so many different forms, and uh, there are so many different angles to it. It's not just there's not one definition that you know everything either is or isn't 
a lot of things involving women can be or they are not. And um, yeah, I think especially when you're looking at older films and sure, you have to contextualize them, but to the time period that they were made, but also you can read them through the scope of now and through your experiences and your understanding of life now and draw new interpretations of things and, and find ways that they can fit into your understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's part of the fun That's of right. watching classic films. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and you see, it's so like we were talking about with, uh, my name is Julie Ross. You see where these films do begin to work against certain assumptions and, and um, uh, can actually construct some really interesting narratives that, that are not quite what we would expect from films of this period. Exactly. So were there others that you were just like, oh man, this is a great film noir? Um, well, the only other two that I've watched this week were Gilda and The Lady from Shanghai. And now I have big crush on Rita Hayworth. And... <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, I've always known that she was attractive, I've liked her, but watching those two movies like back to back, I was just like, oh man, mm-hmm. she's amazing. I love her. <laughs> so, yeah, those are two. I really liked, I liked the lady from Shanghai more than Gilda. Um, yeah, I think it's a better film. Yeah. It it was really interesting, and I liked her character better, um, much better. Uh, I it's those are two movies that I it's like I've always known about them. For some reason, I had never gotten around to seeing either one, and so it was just like, oh, good, I can fill in some more blind spots. That's what I've been doing a lot with this time is just like trying to. I mean, I've been watching some comfort movies, but also trying to really focus on things that I definitely should have seen by now and just never have. So, but. But yeah, both of those two movies, I think, are perfect examples of what you're talking about with that femme fatale idea where you have these women that, I mean, in Gilda, there's a little bit more of her just kind of being stuck. But um, she, again, is able to, you know, work her way through the problem. I, I trying to think how I want to talk about this. Yeah, I mean, guilt is interesting because she is a femme fatale. She's typed as a femme fatale. Right. But she also isn't. Right. She like, kind of threads a needle. Yeah. Yeah. It's a. It's, I just watched this two days ago, but I've watched so many movies in between that I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because it's like she she's stuck in this situation. Well, especially when she tries to get away from him... By leaving, but she's still stuck. Like, she cannot... She's in a situation that she just is kind of not able to get herself out of. I feel like I'm talking around things, but not really talking about it. <laughs> um, but, no, you know, I know, I know what you mean. That she's, like, she... She's, she's in... She's in... Again, it's, the, it's those social, cultural restrictions. Mm-hmm. That she's kind of in a situation because of... Um, because of who she is, because of the way that her life has played out, right. that she has difficulty breaking away from, and and she almost can't. And there are certain assumptions that are made about her as as a woman and as a person, mm-hmm. because of the situation that she has gotten herself into. Um, some of which is is very much not her fault. Right. Yeah. 
Well, and she's in this life that is very patriarchal. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, anytime that she sees a glimmer of a chance to get herself out of it, she just puts herself into another, not necessarily worse, but another bad situation. And so mm-hmm. it's it's just this kind of, this this life that she just cannot escape from. There's mm-hmm. There's really not a way out for her. No matter what she does. Yeah. Uh, if if you if you get a chance, and I'm not saying it's not a good film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay. But but Rita Hayworth is wonderful in it. Uh, is another one that's on here, Affair in Trinidad, which is oh, kind yeah. of it was it was meant to be sort of the bringing Glenn Ford and Rita Hayworth back together, uh, and it's <laughs> I'm gonna steal this, Nate. Thank you very much. I I don't think you listen all the time but thank you very much so I'm going to steal this phrase from you it's like notorious but stupid uh and and it actually is like a lot of the film is very similar to Alfred Hitchcock's notorious uh but but one of the things that happens in the film is that basically it's Rita Hayworth who is like this this whose husband dies whose husband apparently kills himself right and She's like mourning. She's upset because her husband just killed himself. And then all of these men begin telling her what to do. And she's sitting there going like, and like at one point the cops basically say that it was her fault that he killed himself because she was too attractive. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And, and, but her reactions, I think are really what make it because she's just like, what? (laughs) I'm just, she's like sitting there. She's just like, I'm just sitting here. I'm like not doing anything, God. <laughs> like, and wow. the entire film is like that. It's just like, how dare you? And it's just like, Jesus, like leave Rita Hayworth alone. She's just existing. And you guys are all really dumb. Like each and every one of you are the dumbest motherfuckers. Yeah. And she's just like, um, can I can I be unhappy that my husband just died? Like, can I have a moment here, please? Nope. Nope, you can't. <laughs> You are too. I, you are too beautiful. No man can possibly live up to having a woman so beautiful. It's like, well, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, but I really liked her in the Lady from Shanghai. That one was that one was good. Um, I loved the the shootouts, like the whole scene at the um fun house at yeah. the end. Everything reminds me of other movies. I kept thinking about Birds of Prey. <laughs> Well, that's definitely, I mean, I think that there's definitely referentiality in Birds of Prey to Lady from for Shanghai. For sure. Yeah. For sure, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's that scene, that whole sequence was just so fun to watch. And I just kept thinking, like, man, how did they do this? Um, mm-hmm. But but I really liked, I really liked the movie. I liked the character um, that she plays. Orson Welles is, you know... <laughs> Orson Welles. <laughs> True. Um, it was really funny because last night I posted something about that I was watching it and I have a new celebrity crush and someone asked me if it was Orson Welles and I was just like, oh my gosh, no. Blah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I liked that one. What are some that you think that people should see that we haven't talked about yet? That are on I mean, the there, collection. 
There are a lot of them. One of the latest ones uh, so from 1962 is this Experimented Terror, which is a terrifying film. It is a really well-made film. It's um, Lee Remick. Uh, it's directed by Blake Edwards, who is more famous for doing stuff like Breakfast at Tiffany's and the Pink Panther series. Um, but the, the, whole, the whole film is basically about a bank clerk, played by Lee Remick, who gets entrapped into um, uh, helping a killer commit a robbery uh, when he sort of, he invades her house and um, threatens, threatens her and threatens her sister. And a lot of it is about this kind of um, back and forth between the two of them. It is brilliantly shot. It is a gorgeous film. It is terrifying. Like just the opening of the film is one of the scariest, creepiest openings I have ever seen. Uh, that's a really wonderful one. Also, like there, there are the big ones. There are things like, um, well, you said Gilda, Dead Reckoning, uh, In a Lonely Place, which two uh, Humphrey Bogart movies. In a Lonely Place is, is wonderful with Gloria Graham. The Mob, uh, which is the which has uh, Broderick Crawford kind of as this this man who's infiltrating um, uh, the mob running of wharf workers of uh, longshoremen. Let's see what else. Murder by Contract, which is probably one of the more B-level of these films, uh, which, again, is just very stark and violent and a little bit nasty, but really well-made and very, like, quick. One of the things I like about a lot of these films is that many of them are, like, an hour and a half or under. And so many of them are just so tight and so well done, just, like, this very quick punctuations of, of violence and darkness and you really couldn't sit for much longer than that but it works so well so those are some that i just think are, are wonderful films and also also i do have to mention the crimson kimono which i've talked oh, yeah. about before uh it's the samuel fuller film again under an hour and a half and very much the kind of film that you do not expect from this time period Huh, cool. Yeah, pretty much every one of these movies in this collection is under two hours, and a lot of them are under an hour and a half. And mm-hmm. it's like, wow, I can watch like three of these in a night and not even think about it because it's just like binge watching a TV show. Yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So any any others that you wanted to mention or we can we can wrap this up? I think this is a good place to wrap up. But we also have a bunch of questions that we didn't answer. Well, let's do those. I mean, like, let's wrap up the, the the noir talk and answer some questions and then close up the episode. Sorry about that. I just got so into, like, let's talk about this one and this one and this one. And then I was like, oh, yeah, we've got to, we have, like, questions. Yeah, they can um, listen first, a few more minutes. It's okay. First, I just wanted to, to mention um, at... E.A. Gigante's question about Melancholia that you DM to us. Really sorry, neither one of us have seen Melancholia. Uh, so we can't answer the question. Yeah, sorry. Uh, but I'm glad that you appreciate Kristen or Kirsten Dunst's performance, and it is too bad when asshole directors overshadow great work by other people. Yeah, yeah, really. So so we, we apologize for that. Um, we did see your question. We just we can't really answer it. Uh, so one of the questions that we got was from at BLC Agnew. What's your favorite aspect of uh, film noir that goes under discussed? I mean, I kind of mentioned what mine was, which is yeah. this kind of dichotomy between between the feminist uh, interpretations of the femme fatale and the anti-feminist um, sensibilities of it. So is, is there one for you, Karen? 
No, I think that's the same thing. I think that there's there's a lot more feminism in them than people will acknowledge or understand or realize. Yeah. And I really like that. I I also like how nebulous of a genre it is. The fact that it really it, it ultimately isn't a genre, it's a style. And so mm-hmm. a lot of these films that we've been talking about share similar attributes, but they're also very different in a lot of ways. And so you can't you, you don't necessarily sit down and watch a film noir and know what's going to happen. Right. Uh, and yeah. I really like that about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we also had a question from at Noah underscore Saturn. What is your favorite noir leading man? Who's your favorite noir leading woman? And then there's also one more that I have a thought on, uh, but I will wait until the end. So who's your favorite noir leading man, Karen? I mean, Humphrey Bogart. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How could anybody not love Bogey the best? Come on. <laughs> he is the best. Like I'm trying to, I mean, I'm trying to think if there's anyone else that really comes close. Yeah. In noir, uh, yeah, not really. Like he also, he often plays very likable characters too, mm-hmm. or at least interesting characters. Yeah, I'll tell you who my least favorite is Glenn Ford. I fucking hate Glenn Ford. <laughs> I'm sorry, That's Kim. Right, you've mentioned that before. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so sorry, Kim, but I don't understand. I like, I, I think it's just such a chore that any woman has to kiss Glenn Ford. I mean, it's just, it's just mean. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> Kim's not here. She can't defend herself. So, <laughs> uh, Favorite noir leading lady. That's a little bit more difficult. Uh, yeah, that is more difficult. Um, I mean, my uh, new favorite is Rita Hayworth. But... <laughs> <laughs> I, I also love Lauren Bacall. Um, mm-hmm. And again, part of that is because she did a couple of films with Bogey and, and they're so good together. And yeah. Gloria Graham is also wonderful. And, and again, one of those actresses that you're never, you're never quite sure, you know, is she going to be bad? Is she going to be good? Is she going to be somewhere in between? Usually she's somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Um, but she can, she gives some great performances, the big heat and uh, in a lonely place are two, two great ones. And she's always a little bit sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's tragic in a lot of ways. Yeah. <clears throat> And the, the final question is, who dies more in noir, Elisha Cook Jr. or Shelley Winters? <laughs> I mean, my answer, do, do you know who Elisha Cook Jr. is? No. You, you definitely know, but even if you don't know, because he is in everything. Okay. He's, uh, if you, have you seen um, The Maltese Falcon? Yeah. So you know the young, uh, the young hood that is kind of always following uh, Cindy Greenstreet around. Uh huh. That's Elisha Cook Jr. Ah, okay. He pops up in so many different noirs. I'm pretty positive that he dies in every single noir <laughs> that he's in. So I'm gonna say that he is the one that dies the most. I have nothing necessarily to back that up with, but I'm pretty positive. <laughs> <laughs> I just pulled up his filmography. First of all, it's very long. Yeah, he's in everything. He had a <laughs> he very really long is. And now I'm like, oh, Rosemary's Baby. Oh, okay. He really has been in everything. You're right. Yeah, he he had a very long career, and and I'm like I say, I'm pretty positive he dies in every single noir that he's in. So probably. Uh, I think it's Elisha Cook Jr. <laughs> <laughs> Love Shelley Winters though. <laughs> yeah, Shelley Winters is great. She doesn't always die though. Like she, no. she sometimes does. Um, she's always sad. 
Every film that she's in, she's sad, but she's really good. It's funny how such a happy person can play always such a sad person. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. So that actually does, I think, probably maybe wrap us up. Uh, Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We have been discussing uh, so many good Colombian noirs, and they're all on Criterion Channel, and you can, if you don't have it, you can get it for free for two weeks, and it's totally worth it. Like, it, it really is just, there's so much good stuff on there. So thank you so much for listening to us. As always, there are multiple ways that you can get in touch with us. You can get in, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at CitizenDamePod. Uh, you can go on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash citizen dame. You can send us an email with questions or comments or requests, stuff like that at citizen at gmail.com. Uh, our website is citizen There will be some more reviews, new reviews coming up in the next week. Uh, I've just gotten finished working through a couple of Blu-rays. So I'm going to have some reviews up on that. We're going to be covering some, um, streaming films and stuff like that so please check out our website citizendamepod.com uh if you want to contribute to our patreon we have some wonderful patrons um that's patreon.com slash citizendame and thank you so much to the patrons who continue to contribute you guys are keeping the lights on and so thank you very much to heather adriana crooked table podcast michael james katie cariata mason matthew monty Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Sharon, Steve, Tao, and Will. We're really grateful, and we know that it's tough right now for a lot of people, so we totally understand. But also, it's it's wonderful because it means that we can continue to host and um, and continue to run things here. You can also go to our Zazzle store. That's zazzle.com slash citizendame. Everybody's running out of clothes right now because no one's going to the laundry mat. So come on, <laughs> get a few. Uh, you can give us a couple of bucks at uh, Ko-Fi. It's ko-fi.com slash citizendame. And, of course, you can always get in touch with us in a multitude of ways. Karen, where can they find you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at LH Business. So from us to you, everybody stay safe, stay healthy, uh, watch good movies. Bye. Boots. It's a manly kind of fashion that you borrowed from the boots. Borrowed from the boots. Pinky boots. Fashion magazines, they wear them. And you rush to obey like the women in the harem. Full length, half length. Fully fashioned, half length. Brown boots, black boots. Patent leather jack boots. Low boots, high boots. Lovely lanky thigh boots. We all dig those boots. <laughs>